Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is Dr. Michael Rabo, an internist who provides palliative care treating hospitalized patients with life-altering or terminal illnesses. He's director of the Symptom Management Services at the UCSF Helen Diller Family Comprehensive Cancer Center and associate director of the UCSF Palliative Care Leadership Center. What's most remarkable about Dr. Rabo is that he describes the space in which we see patients as a sacred space. In this conversation, we explore that idea. You're very, very welcome to the show, Mike. I'm so pleased to be speaking with you today. And I want to start with your story as a physician. You are an eminent physician and you clearly had an amazing career. But what brought you into medicine and why do you stay in it? And what's your philosophy on the practice of medicine? I think I originally went into medicine because of the idea that it was going to allow me to do something good every day. There's really this sense of medicine as helping sort of clarify how you could go through life and contribute, obviously make a living as well, but not have to think so much about that part of it just to be able to use your career as a way that you could finish each day knowing that you had done something positive in the world. And that, that really was sort of a, quite an idealistic way to start, but I think it's how I ended up in the field. And then during the course of medical training, I was very disturbed by the challenge of processing and understanding everything that was going on to me and what I was doing with patients and to patients and felt like I think probably many interns do after the first day of internship. Enough happened on that one day. I could spend a year reflecting on that and writing about it and thinking about it. Um, but of course, day two comes soon enough and you're on the next. So for me, the training process was quite impactful and not necessarily in a positive way, really impactful and just a recognition of how difficult it was to sort of mature as a person at the same time that I was developing expertise as a physician. And having just gone through a very transformative period of my life, you know, around college, where personal development and growth was so central, it felt almost like a step back to go into medical training and just sort of have to memorize things again. And so for me, I really gravitated towards these more existential elements in medicine. And by the end of residency in general internal medicine, I was really interested in compassion and empathy in the doctor-patient relationship. And that's, what, that's really what I wanted to do to try and understand. And at the time, end-of-life care was really where those questions were most relevant and most being asked the most. And so I really focused in at that point on the field of end-of-life care, which was the what we used to call palliative care before, before we sort of switched the name. And I was, I was very, very drawn to this idea of what is the relationship between the clinician and the patient. As a matter of fact, I think the pivotal moment for me going into the field was when I was a on-call resident late at night and got a call to go see a patient at four in the morning who was in distress. And I walked into the patient's room and he was sitting on the edge of his bed with a giant gallon bottle of Go Lightly on the floor next to his feet, having 
being told they have to drink this one entire gallon of, of liquid to prepare for the next day's colonoscopy. And he was sort of sitting with his, his head in his hands, uh, slumped over. And I, I had some sense then that what really mattered to me was the suffering of others. And that's what really engaged me in clinical medicine. And, and that, I think, in many ways was the beginning for me of, of a clear commitment to the field of what, what became palliative care. That's a lovely story. I can just visualize the scene of this poor man thinking he had to drink all this and suffering through it for the sake of yeah. his bowel. You said a couple of things there that I want to pick up on before we go much further. One of which was that it was about making a living. And the second was that it was maturing as a person. And I think probably in my conversations with physicians in the course of these podcasts, those are the two themes that seem to almost strike a discordant note. Because making a living requires, certainly in the US and increasingly elsewhere around the world, jumping through hoops that come in the way of your interaction with the patient, your ticking forms, your justifying decisions, and all of that, quite apart from the medical legal side. So let's start with that one. How have you come to terms with that in your career? I think the way I've come to terms with it is that part of my career included something that I hadn't planned on, which was in program development. That I, I had just decided that 15 minutes wasn't long enough for me to see my patients. I wanted to see them longer. So I created a program where I could do that. And so I, I really do feel like there is a commitment that's very satisfying to improving the healthcare system. Because I agree with you, that tension of having to jump through various hoops and certainly having to limit some of what you, what I think might be the most productive effort for the sake of filling in the right forms and checking the right boxes. And, you know, unfortunately, that's only become more, more salient as an issue as in the United States, at least physicians are spending twice the amount of time doing their note as they are face to face with the patient. And I don't know anyone who loves doing notes, but I, I think I might be among the people who hate them the most. And yet it's necessary for some part of it is necessary for good patient care. And it's certainly necessary for billing and keeping your job and various other things. So there really is a lot of compromise in the system that we have in the United States and, and many other systems as well, where there is a real mismatch. Someone described the issue about documentation as we're like making a map with a one-to-one -one scale. Like every second we spent with patients, we're spending the same amount of time writing about it. And we're describing exactly what we did rather than summarizing it or having someone else write the note or clarifying financial system that, that made that kind of medical legal and, and billing notation less necessary. Part of the issue is that when we take our medical students into the program, we take very driven, very ambitious, very able young men and women to into the profession. And of course, the, the notion of them then having the cheap seats, going on the cheap holidays, having the secondhand car, all the rest of it, that jars. And of course, they're then driven to jump through whatever hoops are necessary in order to achieve. And that's at the financial side. Let's set aside the vocation side for a moment. This is a major problem, isn't it? 
that our profession hasn't yet come to terms with the idea that the doctor is not going to earn a huge amount of money. If you want to do that, you go into engineering or computer science or become an entrepreneur or something. How do you think we'll resolve that in years to come? It's a great uh, question. I don't think I know uh, uh, an answer or an easy answer for sure. But we, we always get what we pay for in the sense that we motivate behaviors with money. Quite clearly, that's a major, major force. And so the mismatch is quite apparent when we're talking about people who are motivated, some of them by their deep love of science or their curiosity in research, their love of one-on-one patient care. And none of that is aligned particularly well with the structures that we have in terms of compensation, certainly in the United States around our whole healthcare system and fee-for-service. And so I imagine that a solution would have to lie somewhere in an alignment of how money is paid. This idea of value-based payments where there's a certain amount of money for a episode of care or for a patient's whole life or some unit of care. And then we're all motivated to do the best care we can with the least amount of money. And it really, I think, then opens up all sorts of other possibilities beyond even just individual physician care, because now all of a sudden the whole transdisciplinary team becomes important because you know there are people who can do things better or faster than you can have a perspective that you don't even hold. And so it would the, the finance, reorganizing the finances obviously would, would really enable some creativity in how we care for patients. And, and it's long been said by many before me, you know, that if you have a, we, we have a system that pays people based on illness rather than on health. And so there's another mismatch of motivations that I think is really, really important. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't have the answer any more than anyone else. But I do remember making the choice to become an academic and therefore take a massive pay cut because academia doesn't pay like clinical practice. So my clinical practice is a very small part of what I do now. And as a consequence of that, I had to move house. I had to move into a cheaper neighborhood, a very, very nice neighborhood, but not not the neighborhood that I could have been able to live in had I stayed in full-time clinical practice. And I was thinking to myself, there are not many young people who would, at the point in my, that I reach in my career, make that choice to say, fine, I'll go to that place and send my kids to public school as opposed to private school. I think that's, I think that's absolutely correct. And, and we are selecting who goes into medicine and selecting who goes into what fields of medicine based on compensation so that the orthopedics, dermatology, radiology kind of specialties are now oversubscribed in primary care. Pediatrics are undersubscribed. And in a fee-for-service type of scenario like we have in the United States, you can just look at what's being paid for and procedures are really well compensated in communication, even though I might consider that my procedure as a palliative care doc is not well compensated. And so it's quite clear that the system is promoting less interaction, less connection, less deep awareness, less curiosity about the patient and and sort of these finer, deeper, emotional, spiritual, existential points of life. Because in palliative care, I've long said, I wish I had something titanium to implant in people because there would be a clear financial model for what we're doing. 
without that, we've been fighting for years trying to figure out how to actually get paid for what we do, which I think we have reasonable evidence now is super important and actually saves money and decreases healthcare unwanted healthcare utilization and things like that. And yet there's very little that gets paid for that's based on communication or intense depth relationship with people. If you think about it, the public have been sold a lie, haven't they? They've been told that there is a pill for everything. There's a procedure for everything. Now, if you have an issue with your eating, you're going to have bariatric surgery, where they cut out large bits of your bowel for whatever, whatever the consequence of that. You don't need to even think about taking diet and exercise. If you're getting old, have cosmetic surgery. We're told all of these things as if the value is not in in you healing yourself. The spiritual side of things are devalued. You're right. And the side that says, if you pay so many dollars, you better get a diagnosis and you better get a procedure and they better do something as if the doing something is not talking about it. Right. And, and of course, in the field where I spend my time, especially the end of life care portion of palliative care, one of the, the blessings of that experience is people are forced to grips with what matters most to them, what really matters, what's important. And in that way, you, you potentially have an avenue to get past that issue of there's a pill for everything. Because all of a sudden, you realize, well, there isn't really a pill for mortality, uh, even though there may be some interventions that promote longer life. But ultimately, these are issues that all of us face. And we're not buying ourselves out of, or diagnosing ourselves out of, or treating ourselves out of um, some of these fundamental issues of loss, disability, and, and certainly end of life and, and death itself. And of course, the other reality being that 40% of people res- respond to anything, including chocolate pills, <sighs> because we have within ourselves the ability to heal yes. ourselves through whatever, including some incredibly life-limiting conditions as well. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. The issue of individuals taking ownership, I think, has been stripped partly away from patients, but also from clinicians, where we pay the same price of thinking that a pill will solve every problem, forgetting that we have within ourselves the ability to connect, inspire, motivate others that we work with and to engage their own internal Uh, healing abilities, treat ourselves as if we ourselves as individuals don't matter when, when of course, we do. But the very belief that someone else could just have prescribed the the same medicine and you'd have the same outcome ends up being one of, I think, the roots of our own burnout, not really being able to feel the importance of who we are as individuals. I hear this all the time. You ask a medical student a question and you say, what do you think is causing this problem? Patients have got tummy pain. And before you can say anything, they've got a list of 20 different investigations they'd like to order immediately in order to get to the bottom of this. And you think, now those 20 of which you're going to have some false positives, they're going to have to chase up with another 20 and uh-huh. so on. And somehow, if you're the grumpy old doctor that says, but did you examine the patient doctor? They think, oh dear. Dr. House is back, as it were. We are not teaching medicine the same way because partly we're driven that way. We are constantly being asked for certainty in the decisions we make by those who pay, 
the paymasters yeah. demand it, don't they? And there's other forces at work that are quite similar, I think, in terms of beyond just the certainty, we like to count things that are easily counted. And if you have an outcome that's not easily ordered and scaled and counted, it's going to be hard to reimburse because we don't know how many RVUs went into creating that outcome. Whereas we can be much more specific about how many RVUs there are for replacing a knee or something like that. And so we are really stuck in this issue of at the same time recognizing that there are things that are very important, but also that they're very hard to teach. I think they're harder to teach than just rote memorization, facts, and figures. And then there's skills that need to be practiced. And it's been very difficult for us to figure out how to compensate and motivate people to engage in this really hard work and meaningful work and, and deeply personal work. And so one of the things that's, I think, been striking to me is that there's been, not just during internship, but in all the years since in medical education, there's there's precious little instruction and guidance and motivation to really pay attention to personal, professional development, who you are. I think we know over time that as people get older, they tend to sort of forget some of the facts and figures. And what what they have to offer that's improving over time is their intuition, is their wisdom, is their ability to be present, all these other things that we, I think we need to make sure that we're motivating people to pay attention to all these years so that they don't end up at 50 or 60 or 70 with a personhood that's smaller than when they started. I think if we're going to provide something better or additive to what our iPhone can do, what artificial intelligence is going to be able to do in medicine, it's going to be about our something about the magic of you know our limbic systems and resonance with another patient and empathy and understanding and, and connection. And I've stopped trying to compete with my iPhone because it's better at doing those things of memorizing and coming up with lists. But I, I hope that I've been getting better at my ability to connect to a person. And that's that's what I think of as sacred experience for myself. I think of it as a source of incredible uh, positive feedback and and joy but it's hard to teach it it's hard to teach it if there aren't a lot of role models either for people who are enjoying it and doing it well that is a nice segue because you did say something else which i wanted to explore with you and you said in medicine you mature as a person and yet often the courses are replete with things where you have to regurgitate things right in medicalizing humanity, our patients, we can't escape that either. And so we then become medicalized and routinized. And I think that one of the sources of burnout is uh, when we strip away the creativity that's possible in medicine, when we strip away the personness, personhoodness, or personality uh, of medicine, it seemed like a good idea at the time to just sit down and memorize everything as a student. It seems like that's how you're going to get ahead. And, and you will probably in terms of grades. But the question is in terms of sort of life satisfaction and your, the ultimate worth or contribution that you have to patients, we're really missing something. And, the, and you know, I think that we're one of an outlier. If you think about how chaplains are trained, part of their training is, is, per, is their personal and professional development to understand really what it means. And I think partly 
we've lost some sense of what it might mean for to be physicians or clinicians just generally as the world is sort of exploding. I mean, the amount of medical knowledge is exploding. Why we think we can still teach the same way we taught, you know, with four year, a classic four-year medical school education doesn't really make any sense anymore because the world is so different. But our role increasingly is going to be different. And, you know, if we think the puck is going, certainly I don't think I should be wasting too much of my brain on things that a computer is going to be able to give more reliably. So interesting sort of anecdote, which is I took my medicine boards a couple of years ago, and they made this huge big deal of security, making sure I wasn't taking in notes and they made me take off my glasses so they could look through them to make sure they weren't Google glasses and I was getting information from the web. And of course, as a patient, I would assume my doctor was completely incompetent if my doctor didn't know how to use the world's amazing resources. If they couldn't Google how to help me, I would be worried about them because their information is bound to be out of date and inadequate. So this idea of specialization where we can get information from things that are good at getting information, which is computers, but we can get connection out of people seems to be where things need to go. Well, where they'll have to go. Yeah, the skill we need to learn is to be able to operate the computer at the same time as we are operating in the in the environment with the person in front of us. It doesn't become a distraction. And you're right; that's possible. Yeah, I mean, if 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 Google says that you're likely going to lose your ability to walk or talk or pee or whatever losses you have before you. This is where the this is where the the clinician comes into play, which is here's that information. Let's understand what it's going to mean, what this might mean for you, and that's something that I'm sure computers are going to get better at. But I think that there is something deeply infinite about the human soul that I don't even think the iPhone 12 is going to going to help us with. I think people often think that. By saying this, that you're saying to people, it's all in your head, it'll all get better. But the reality is that even if it is in your head, it's very real, isn't it? If as far as a patient, it's very real. And we need to acknowledge that. And when we acknowledge that, somehow it becomes less real and less of a threat. There are plenty of people who have demonstrable on MRI scan or CT scan problems, and that's that's where we start. That's not where we end. What, what, is, what is the meaning of all of that? So for sure, these are not either or questions. This is a both and situation where we're like, we have both degeneration and inflammation and infection of tissues. Uh, we also have social determinants of health and we have people's responses and we have coping and we have all the things that make up complex systems. And, you know, to a certain extent, I think we're somewhat relieved by the simplicity of systems when we can make them simple enough so that in the ICU, if something is too fast, we make it slower. And if something's too slow, we make it faster. And and that's straightforward and it's satisfying and it's quite miraculous, obviously, how, how that's been developed. But at the same time, then, there is also this lived human experience that is so much more complex and so much more fluid and alive and literally organic 
that we have this opportunity to be of service to people by by showing up as a person who can relate, receive, understand, integrate, help integrate all those elements. We've covered a lot of ground. We've talked about how medicine is about making a living for so many people and that how that gets in the way of them practicing medicine. How maturing as a person is just as important as knowing your anatomy, your physiology, your pathology, your pharmacology, but also that it is about art of practice. It is not just the science. The science is one is one way that we we practice that art. It's the medium in which, which we use to do amazing things with people. If, you, if you're interested in people, this is the profession to be in. Right, right. And science is a tool, and it's a powerful tool, and power can be used for the good, and we know that power can be used for, for bad as well. And so I, I think there is an element to which this is not just meaningful and emotional and psychological and even spiritual. I think that there's a moral aspect to this as well about doing right by people, about being in service to people, about having a fiduciary relationship with people. That's both prof- you know, professionalism as well as, I think, morality and, and ethics. And I think one of the things that's just been so striking to me, and it was amazing how long I was in the field before I had this particular thought, which was there was one day when I was in clinic with someone, and for some reason, it's, it just struck me all of a sudden that there were two people in the room. But I think about my clinical work often as, oh, there's a, a patient in room four that I have to go see. And I think about that patient there, there's a person there, there's a case there, they have an appointment window for you know 30 minutes here, and not, not really deeply recognizing that actually in that room, there are two people, and I was one of them. And so this idea of recognition of two people in the room, of, of medicine being about relationship not, you know, patient-centeredness is, is a very sort of limited concept, I think. It's almost a no-brainer that you have to remember, keep the patient primary. Like, okay, great, that's fine. We can accept that. But let's go on to what's really interesting, which is, yes, with a patient who's primary, what do you do when that person is in the room with someone else and the clinician is bearing witness to suffering or to loss, uh, to joy, whatever it is? And then all of a sudden you realize, well, I'm not just here in the room as a collection of facts and figures. I'm actually here as a, as a person. And there's something subtle about the powerful about my ability to understand and connect and to see things that the CT scan can't be relied on to see. I think that we fooled ourselves for a long time into thinking that science was the salvation. It was a salvation away from having to worry about these softer issues of art and love, healing. And I think we also fool ourselves, notably, thinking that science was the way out of social determinants of health and, uh, in, and structural racism, when all of a sudden we're realizing, actually, no, we're, we're using, we've been using science to affect racism just the way we have used every other structure of our society. And healthcare is just as responsible for how it's used its tools for both good and for bad. What I'm hearing you say, Mike, is that there are two actors in the room. There's you and, and the patient, and that both are important. That what gives us joy, what brings us satisfaction is so important for us to practice medicine. Because if we, it doesn't bring us joy, if we become automatons, if we become mindless, and we become 
part of the computer that we're working with, as opposed to the person who's sitting in that room, we lose so much of our ability to do what humans need at a time when they're distressed. Uh, our ability to look somebody in the eye and make them feel cared for. Yes, I think that's well said. It's, I think that's exactly right, that what people need is to know that that person who's in the room with them, who heard something that they'd never told anyone else before, that they never admitted to themselves, cares about them, that they care. And even if what you feel in medicine isn't joy, at the very least, it should be an appreciation that you're walking on sacred ground. Some seriousness of understanding the preciousness of what you've been invited into to, to do. There are things that, that people will say. There's times when I'm bearing witness to something that I feel so incredibly privileged and not, not the sort of bad sense of privilege that, that we've been entertaining a lot recently, but, but this sense of gratitude for being able to experience this other person, to receive this other person and, and hopefully to offer, be able to offer something uh, to them. So I, you know, I think that different people have different personalities and, and eke out ha- happiness in different ways. So I'm not quite sure it's exactly about happiness so much as it is about meaning. And I think that if you can go to work and come back having had a meaningful experience or two, you will be able to sustain in this work. If all you've done is check all the boxes, I can't imagine lasting too, too long doing just that. Mike Rabo, it's been a joy speaking with you. My abiding memory of this conversation will be the phrase, you're walking on sacred ground. Thank you very much. Well, my pleasure. It's really a pleasure to speak with you. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.